This has come to the table. Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. These studies are presented every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at our church at 3800 East Pershing Boulevard in Cheyenne, Wyoming. If you'd like to contribute to these studies, you can make a donation at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY dash giving. Matthew chapter 10, as we continue in our red letter studies. Now, last couple of studies, we kind of rushed through because I really wanted to get to this stuff in chapter 10 because it's pretty tightly packed and it deals with more than a couple of things. But the overarching theme, at least beginning in last week or in the last 10 minutes or so of last week's study, has to do, believe it or not, with outreach. Now, it was a little bit, a little, in a little bit different context in Jesus' time than now, but the main mission was still the same. Going forth with good news about God and God's kingdom, expecting problems because that's what happens when you advance into the enemy's kingdom. He's not just going to roll over and play dead. Well, if he does, it's, that's exactly what he's doing. Is he's playing and they'll try to bite you when you're not looking. But you know, advancing into the enemy's kingdom, expecting difficulties, but pressing on anyway. And that's going to continue uh, in tonight's study. So let me find a good place to launch, pick up our context. Well, let's just pick it up from verse, let's pick it up from chapter 10, verse 5. It'll be some review, but it's all connected. So Verse 5, it says, These twelve Jesus sent forth. Well, which twelve were they? Well, it's the twelve apostles, or the, the disciples that he had at that time. These twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not. Well, why did he tell them that? <clears throat> Is it because God doesn't love Gentiles, or God didn't love the Samaritans? Well, no. It, it, it in no way reflects a lack of love on God's part for those groups of people. We know who Gentiles are. Gentiles, anybody's not a Jew. Well, then who were the Samaritans? The Samaritans were a kind of a half-breed people. They were half-Jewish. You could say not really half-Jewish because Jew refers to the religion. They were half-Hebrew and half-Gentile. And there's a history behind that. You can go back into the Old Testament and dig it out. But he said, don't go to these guys yet. And the reason for that was very simple. It was an issue of priorities. The Jews were and still are, in the natural sense, God's chosen people. Now, that's not, something, that's not a drum I have to beat too hardly here because this is Cheyenne. You know? Don't detect a whole lot of anti-Semitism here in Cheyenne. Or if there is, I just haven't seen it. Maybe it's under the radar. I have no idea. But that spirit of anti-Semitism is straight from the devil and it survives from age to age, at least until this whole thing is wrapped up. But Jesus was a Jewish Messiah first. And he was sent to the people of Israel first. And so it had to fulfill, he had to fulfill God's ordained plan to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel first. Not exclusively, just first. They had to have their chance. And it, it all ties into God's larger plan. He knew that ultimately the Jews were going to reject him as a nation. There were many Jews who believed, but there were many more who did not. And so he had to be sent to them first. He had to be betrayed by them. That was part of God's plan. He had to be given up to the secular authorities. That was part of God's plan. And he had to die. Why did he have to die? Well, we know that. Somebody had to pay for our sins. 
because we couldn't pay for them ourselves. And so we could, that's one reason why we don't mourn the crucifixion. As believers, why mourn it? Why feel grief over it when it was part of God's plan and it was essential for our redemption? The crucifixion, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, we celebrate the whole thing. And, and that's just it. We celebrate it. And I'm not saying we would wish Jesus to ever go through it again. But the fact that he went through it is why we can be saved. It's why we can be born again. It's why we can live above sin. It's why we can be children of God, children of the light, as we've been talking about in recent services. So he says, go, don't go to the Gentiles. And you could almost insert in parentheses the word yet. Okay, Don't go to the Gentiles yet. Don't go to the Samaritans yet. But verse 6, go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he gives them a mission not beyond, above and beyond just the preaching. He says, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils, freely ye have received, freely give. So he wasn't just sending them out there with a message. He was also sending them out with power, wasn't he? Now, this wasn't quite the same thing as Holy Ghost power. The Holy Ghost had not yet been given to the church, had not yet been given to, had not yet been given to man. Okay, people could be moved upon by the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit did not so much dwell within people because the sin problem hadn't been solved by Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection yet. So he sends them out with a message and he sends them out with power. God's interested in more than just filling your head with information. Now, that tends to be the central focus here at the church because it's a church, you know, sort of evolved, not really evolved, but for lack of a better term, sort of developed out of the Jewish synagogues of the Old Testament and became a focal point for the whole word of God, as well as including the gospel of Jesus Christ, because the gospel is what we're all about. Any church that does not engage primarily in the teaching and the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ is a church that's forgotten its mission. That is why we exist, is to deal in the word and in the gospel. But we're not just limited to that. Jesus wasn't just sending them out with information. He was also sending them out with power to do something with. Did you know that Holy Ghost filled believers can have the same kind of power? I'm not saying that it's the same kind of power like we all just run to the hospital and empty the place out because of our X-Men healing factor we can just touch people with and it solves everything. It's the Holy Ghost's power, not ours. But you understand the distinction that we're making. Those are the gifts of the Spirit. And He gives those gifts to whom He will. But they're His gifts to give. It's not like you know, being given a car and okay, it's my car now, I can drive it wherever you want. He gives it to a person on an incident-by-incident basis. There may or may not be some exceptions to that. It's arguable. But the point is, He sent them out with good news to spread and with power to do good works. Now those two things are integral to the Christian life. The good news, that's the Gospel. The word means good news. And power to do good things. Maybe not always on the same miraculous scale that Jesus gave them here, although that happens also. Yes, we believe in miracles. No, we don't believe in charlatanry and putting on a circus act. 
We're not Benny Hinn. And I'm, if somebody wants healing, hey, I will pray for you. I'll come lay hands on you. I'll pray for you. If you want to be anointed with oil, we'll do that too. I don't really have any. We'll have to go get some. But it's not the oil that has any power. It's the Holy Ghost that has power. We'll do, we'll do all of that as long as it's biblical. But I'm not going to come put my hand on your head and shove you to the floor and say that that's the Holy Ghost knocking you out. Well, I've seen that happen. You've seen a circus act. Now, they might have believed in it themselves, but a lot of times, honestly, it's just putting on a show. You're, you're offending me, preacher. You're offending my sensibilities. I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to. But the Bible talks about doing things decently and in order. And I just don't see a man coming around shoving somebody on the ground and screaming healed in their face as being quite decent or in order. So he gives them a message to spread. He gives them power to do good works. Where is the Christianity of good works now? Well, it needs to be alive and well in us. It needs to be alive and well in us. It doesn't do much good to just wish people well if we have the wherewithal to help. If we have the wherewithal to help somebody out of a bind. And I'm not saying you let people take advantage of you to the point where they put you in a poorhouse. And they might not be able to do anything for someone financially, but you might be able to, my goodness, do something, pick up a hamburger for somebody. You know, any kind of a good work. Is it a commandment? Do I have to do that? Do I go to hell if I don't do that? Well, no, it's not what he's saying. But we have much admonition throughout the, the New Testament to, as believers, do good things for good reason. Not for selfish reason and not because we're trying to impress people or get glory for ourselves. It's supposed to bring glory to God. But you can see how the two work together, right? Because of what God has done in us, let us do good things with it. And then other people will see that. They'll take notice of it. They'll glorify God. And if you don't think so, let me give you a real world example really quick. Now, I don't know a whole lot about the Amish, okay? So I'm not putting a huge stamp of approval on the Amish lifestyle. I'm certainly not preaching that we should all just cut loose, go live in the country, churn butter, and do things without electricity all day, okay? But there's a reputation that they have made for themselves over the centuries. And that is, if they have a loan out for anything, they will march through a blizzard to get to the bank to make the payment on time if they have to. They take it that seriously, taking their, their word and their contractual obligations to make a payment on time and, and to be faithful with that. And I'm only using this as an example. That's how serious they take it. Well, why are we bringing that up? Because they have a reputation for that. And that's why there are many Amish people that can walk into a bank and get a loan without even signing a contract. Your reputation precedes you. Brother, sister, it does. Your reputation precedes you and you make your own reputation. And so if we name the name of Clark Christ, if we fly that flag that says, I am a Christian, well, we need to be living a life to back it up because we're creating a reputation. And not only for ourselves, we're creating a reputation for the whole body of Christ. So we want to not do it shame, do we? We want to be ethical. We want to be honest. We want to be moral. Believe it or not, not that it's those things that save us. They don't. We've, we're very clear about that. It's the blood of Christ that saves. It's our faith in God through the blood of Christ that saves. But as Christians, shouldn't we be moral people? You know, 
Well, I don't rob banks. Well, good. Don't cheat on your taxes either. Be honest. Be upright. Amen? Amen. 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 All right, let's move on. Then he goes on to say, Provide neither gold nor silver nor brass in your purses, nor scrip for your journey, neither two coats, neither shoes, nor yet staves, for the workman is worthy of his meat. His message there, his point there was, God's going to provide. Don't worry about it. If he's got something for you to do, he's going to make a way to do it. Even if it's just living a Christian life on a day-to-day basis, he will provide exactly what you need. Verse 11, And into whatsoever town or city or town that you shall enter, inquire who in it is worthy, and there abide till ye go thence. And when you come into that house, and when you come into a house, salute it. That means greet it. And if the house be worthy, let your peace come upon it. And if it be not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whosoever shall not receive you, nor hear your words, when you depart out of that house or city, shake off the dust of your feet. For verily I say, verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. What's his point there? Go with the message. Go, reach out, do something good with it. If they receive you and they receive the gospel message, praise God. If they don't, just brush off the dust of your feet and move on. Don't fly into a rage. Don't take it personally. Don't get angry. Don't be personally offended. Just figuratively or literally, although literally you'll probably offend some people because enough people know that scripture to know what your gesture means and it would probably be kind of insulting. So whether figuratively or literally, just brush the dust off and move on. And if you apply that here in Cheyenne, there's 80,000 people around here. 80,000 people. If someone doesn't want the gospel, pray for them, say a word of prayer, love them, never turn on them, never bare your teeth, so to speak. And you know know what I mean by that? I don't mean literally. Well, literally too, because that'd just be weird. But, you know, don't get mad. Don't take it personally. Love them from a distance. Just move on. Because there's somebody else who is waiting for the invitation. There's somebody else who does want to know. There's somebody out there drowning in sin who is thrashing for a lifeline. And some of you who have engaged in outreach, you've met people like that. And you were able to connect. And the timing was perfect. And I mean, hey, somebody reached you, didn't they? Somebody first approached you, whether it was in your childhood or in your adolescence or your teenage years or even well into your adulthood. Somebody approached you with the gospel message, even if it was only an invitation or if they just came to you, just full on gave you both barrels. Hey, what do you know about Jesus? Do you know him as your savior? I mean, that's one way to do it also. Not saying it's always the best way, but it can be. It all depends on the person and the situation, right? It's not everybody's the same, and not all situations are the same. We try not to be weird. We go door to door, but we don't, you know, kick the door down and and uh, and be all awkward. Well, you, if you were here last week, I think you remember the demonstration that we gave. You know that whole awkward exchange. The whole, <laughs> hi, hi. Um, have you heard the word of the Lord today? You know, reading off of a script. No, 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 no. We don't try to do it like that. Be normal, please. But. There are opportunities after opportunities to reach out. If they accept, praise God. God might add another soul to the kingdom. God might add another soul, another person to the body of Christ. That's a triumph. That's a tremendous victory. The Bible even says that angels in heaven rejoice over one sinner that repents and gets saved. 
paraphrase slightly, but he does use the words, angels in heaven rejoice over one sinner when they repent. And it's a fact. When you got saved, angels in heaven rejoiced. When someone you knew got saved, the same thing happened all over. There's a lot of rejoicing going on in heaven. It's a great place. We want to go there in God's time. You know what I mean? So he tells them, if they don't receive you, basically just move on. And then he says, for verily, it'll be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. And we talked about that a little bit last week. Well, why is that the case? I thought Sodom and Gomorrah were just, you know, the, I thought they were the apex of wickedness. And that's why God destroyed them with fire from heaven. So why would it be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for any house or any city that rejects the gospel? Well, simple. Sodom and Gomorrah had no Bible. There were no churches in Sodom and Gomorrah. Those were the cities of the plain. They, they weren't Jewish cities. There were no Jewish cities. Those were in the days of Abraham. Abraham wasn't even technically speaking a Jew. He wasn't even a Hebrew. He was a Chaldean. So there was no law of Moses. There was no commandment being spread abroad that was telling people what to do and what not to do, how to live and how not to live. Yet those cities of the plain were still judged and destroyed. Do you ever wonder why that is? Let me just take a moment and sidetrack for a second. Do you ever wonder why that is? Has the, has the thought ever occurred to you in your mind, well, that doesn't seem fair. I mean, I mean, did they know any better? Yes, they did. And this goes, this goes all, this answer goes all the way back to the nature of sin and the nature of evil. So this gets really primal, okay? Let's just follow this for a moment and then we'll dive back into our text because this is one of the reasons why we do what we do. You say, one might say, sorry, well, Sodom and Gomorrah didn't know any better. One, that's not true. Well, two, Sodom and Gomorrah didn't have any churches, synagogues, or anything else. There was, you know, there was no Bible. As you say, the gospel didn't exist yet. Even the law of Moses didn't exist yet. So how is it fair for God to judge them? Because evil is still evil. Evil actions are still result from evil hearts. And those actions are evil regardless of whether or not there is a printed law to the contrary. And if you want something to back that up, I'll run to my very first example, and that is Cain and Abel. And we know who Cain and Abel were, right? Cain and Abel were, um, they were the two first recorded uh, sons of Adam and Eve. So they were the first people born from a woman. And they were brothers. And Cain was, uh, Cain was a, a farmer, basically. And Abel, I believe, was a man of the field. Did I get that right? Yes, because Cain's the one who offered the wrong, the wrong salad. That is what he offered, basically. <laughs> but he's the one who offered the wrong sacrifice. God had appointed animal sacrifice in those days to atone for sins. And so, and Abel took that to heart, offered the right sacrifice. Cain, for whatever reason, decided he wanted to do his own thing. He knew the truth. He knew what the right thing to do was. He simply decided not to do it. And it's kind of indicative of mankind's efforts to save ourselves through our own works and through our own ideas and our own version of morality. And we know that never cuts it with God. It never cuts it with God. That's why God provided us the right sacrifice, and that was in Jesus Christ. Well, what happened? Abel offered the right sacrifice. Cain offered the wrong one. And with full knowledge, God reproved Cain. Cain got mad. Instead of repenting and doing the right thing, which is not a hard thing to do, unless you're proud, as he clearly was, 
Cain got angry and then went and murdered his brother out of jealousy, rage, and everything else. He went and killed his brother. And God judged Cain for that. He didn't end his life, although he could have, but he judged him. He pl placed a curse upon him. You read about it back in Genesis in the first few chapters. He placed a curse upon him, and that curse hounded him until the end of his days. Well, was that fair? Yes, because murder's still evil, isn't it? Regardless of whether or not there's a, an ordinance on the books down at the, at, the, at the municipal building that murder is wrong. Evil acts are intrinsically, naturally, by nature, they are evil. Things like adultery. It's evil no matter, no matter what. It's a, it's a naturally evil act. Um, mur uh, murder, adultery, fornication. Uh, I mean, it, 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 you can go down the whole list. Witchcraft. I mean, the, the, go to Galatians 5 and read it. It's all there. Or virtually all of it spelled out right there. Some of it spelled out earlier in, in this, uh, earlier in this chapter, I believe. It makes it very clear. There are things that people can do that are evil just by definition. And ignorance is no defense. It isn't. Because if it was, think about this, okay? If ignorance, if ignorance got people off the hook where God was concerned and where judgment was concerned, we better shut down every church in the world right now. Shut it down. Shut them down. Don't let the gospel be preached. Don't let the Bible be published or shared because you might make somebody accountable. Right? Think about that. Well, I didn't know any better. Well, people do know. Surprisingly, they know quite a bit more by nature and by conscience than they lead on or than we are often led to believe. So ignorance doesn't let people off the hook. Okay, well, that sounds like bad news. Well, no, it's not bad news. There's good news in that. That's why the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why. That's why, that's why even the medieval Catholic Church played a good role. They didn't do everything right, and they did quite a bit that was wrong, and even quite a bit at times that was, that was monstrous and horrific. But in the overall big picture, they spread the knowledge of God. Now, I'm not saying that we do it the way they did it. You know, we're not going to send conquistadors into people's neighborhoods and start, you know what I'm saying, all right? You kind of get the message. But it at least got some knowledge out there. And God's been able to work with that. How many seeds sown? Again, don't take this as a wholesale endorsement of things that were done, of bad things that were done, or of things that were done badly, okay? It's, I'm not endorsing it. I'm just saying that God has been able to bring good even out of that. Because you go into some dark corners of the world and you start talking to them about Jesus and they know who you're talking about. And for an example on that, let's look at medieval Japan. Well, the Catholics evangelized Japan in the Middle Ages. And then all the Christians, all the Catholics, all the everybody that named the name of Christ got thrown out or killed. And for a measure of centuries, over 200 years, any version of Christianity was a capital offense in Japan until the late 1800s when Admiral William Perry of the United States Navy came steaming into one of their harbors and said, trade with us or die. And then some other missionaries for the first time in a couple of hundred years went into Japanese territory, went into mainland Japan and into some of the islands there, and they found people, they found Christians living in secret. These were Japanese people, Catholics, effectively, 
praying in Latin, didn't even know the words that they were saying, but they'd learned it from their parents and learned it from their parents who'd learned it for their parents 200 years back. I'm telling you, Japanese make amazing Christians when they get saved because they are obsessively dedicated to whatever they give themselves to. It's a cultural trait with them. It's pretty amazing. So anyhow, all right, let's move on. That was a long rabbit trail, I know. Verse 16, behold, now it's still, still under the, the overall theme of outreach. And you see that we've come to this naturally just by course of the scripture that we're in. Behold, verse 16, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. That's Jesus' directive to the soul winner. That's Jesus' directive first to his disciples, and we can take it as applying every bit as much to us. He says, first, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. What's the lesson there? It's dangerous out there, spiritually speaking, and sometimes physically speaking. It depends on where you go. All right? There have been many missionaries that have lost their lives in the jungles of South America, the jungles of Africa, the jungles of Papua New Guinea, or New Guinea, however that's divided over there, in the jungles or in the forests or in the wildernesses of many hostile places, not just jungles. It all depends on where you go and the people that are there. There have been many missionaries that have lost their lives on foreign fields carrying the gospel message. There have been many missionaries that have lost their freedom in nations that were civilized but hostile to the gospel. Let's talk about Soviet Russia. Talk about communist China. Talk about it's just about anywhere in the Middle East. The Christians can be a little bit more open there, but not in Saudi Arabia. Not in Saudi Arabia. They, 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 they simply will not have it there. If you're a migrant worker, you can keep it to yourself. But that's about all you can do over there in Saudi Arabia, at least at this point in time. That might change. It might not. Who knows? So he says, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. There's a contrast. He tells us to be both. Wise as serpents. Be wise, not naive. Christians can't afford to be naive. You have to be wise. You have to be wise. Use wisdom. Use wisdom. Be smart. And then he says, but harmless as doves. So, well, serpents aren't very harmless, are they? No, but doves are. He says, wise as serpents, but harmless as doves. So be wise, but not so cunning that you're looking to do people wrong. We don't try to reach people with the gospel by deceit, do we? We don't want to be like that one brother I heard about years ago. I got to tell you this story because this is good. It's a practical example. Who, uh, in fact, he was my roommate in Bible college. Well, back when he was a church member, okay, he learned better in later years, but when he was first year or so of his Christian experience, he was pretty zealous for getting people to the house of God, but he didn't always have the most ethical methods. And so he, uh, he asked this one girl out on a date, and uh, she thought he was taking her, taking her to dinner. He pulls up to church with her. She was mad as a hornet's nest, I guess, a kicked one. She didn't like that at all. I, th she, I don't know if she stayed for the service or not. Be harmless as doves. Don't mess with people's emotions. Don't work uh, with guile and deceit. Just be open. Be forthcoming. You don't have to be, you know, so honest that you scare... Well, no, no, let me rephrase that. You don't have to be so open. Yes, be honest. Honesty is an absolute. You know, we know, how, you know how the, what the Bible says about that. But don't be so open that you frighten them off, you know, 
run them down, run across an intersection, tackle them to the pavement and say, you know, you need to repent or you're going to burn. You know, no, 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 no. Wise as serpents, harmless as doves. Be both, not just one, but both, not just one or the other. But beware of men, verse 17. Beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils, and they will scourge you in their synagogues. And you shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what ye shall speak, for it shall be given you in that same hour what ye shall speak. For it is not ye that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. And the brother shall deliver up the brother to death, and the father the child. And the child shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth to the end shall be saved. Now let me park it here for a second and clarify something. Remember when we talked about in some of our earlier studies, uh, kind of gave um, advance notice, I don't like calling it a warning, but an advance notice. Some of what Jesus prophesies in the Gospel of Matthew is specific to the Jews. It is future prophecy for Jewish believers particularly during the time of the tribulation. Because we don't really have to worry about us getting scourged in the synagogues, do we? No. Because I don't know any synagogues in the world, for that matter, certainly not in America, that are hauling people in there because of the name of Jesus and beating them. They're not, they're not really doing that. But there's coming a time... Plus, there was coming a time in their day, and there was a lot of that. In the early decades of the church, there was a lot of very, very violent persecution. Very violent persecution. So Jesus was warning them about that, but there's more to come. There's more to come in the future for Jews who believe in a time when it is unpopular. And much as we respect and admire the Jews, and I say, I've said a lot about that, and I continue to various times, especially in the face of anti-Semitism, okay? But Jews over in Israel do not like Christians as a general rule. And a Hebrew over there who converts to Christianity often faces some serious persecution. They're not burning them at the stake, but they do them some real harm over there. Well, I thought only Muslims did that. Oh, no, there are Jews that do that as well. Now, does that mean that we treat them as enemies? No, absolutely not. Under no circumstances. Paul makes that clear over in his letter to the church at Rome. He says that concerning the God, he said concerning Jews, he said, uh, as touching the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. Why? Because they've, re they've rejected the gospel. But he says, but they are beloved for the Father's sake. God still has a plan for them. And so the body of Christ, the church of the living God, individual believers, we take part in no persecution of Jews for any reason. We don't hate them. We don't communicate contempt for them in any way, shape, or form for being Jews. Do you know what we're saying? And following that, what attitude should I have toward the Jew? You could just write it down to the simple string, a good rule of thumb, okay? Whatever that means. I don't know where that came from. The Christian should keep a deep and abiding respect for the Jews in the nation of Israel. There's historical precedent for that, but most importantly, there's biblical precedent for that. They are still his people. He still has a plan for them. It's just that right now, for the time being, since they 
rejected Christ back there in the book of Acts. Right now for the time being, he has them as a nation set upon the shelf. He's not working with them as a nation right now. They're individual Jews who get saved all the time. Individual Jews who become believers all the time. It's very common. It does happen. It happens a lot. But as a nation of people, he doesn't really have a work going on right there in the same sense that he has among the Gentile nations. Today, as has been for the last 2,000 years, this is the time of the Gentiles. This is the time where the Word of God is to be spread across the whole earth, and those who accept it, accept it. Praise God. Those who reject it, we move on. Dust from off our feet. On to the next one. See if they'll accept it. Well, what happens eventually? Well, there's a little glimpse into the future, okay? And there's Bible to back this up. You read about it over, I believe, in Timothy or Thessalonians or both, where he says, in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye, we shall be changed. You've heard the word rapture. Now, the Bible doesn't use that word, but that's an event that is going to happen. When God is done reaching out to the Gentile nations, He's going to take his church away. When's that going to be? No idea. Neither does anybody else. So don't believe them if they tell you. They don't know. They don't know when the rapture is going to be. They don't know when it's going to be. They think they do, but they don't. They may really believe it, but they're wrong. He's going to take his church away. Well, what happens then? Well, that kind of begins that period that we know of as the tribulation because things are going to get awfully bad for Israel during the time that follows the rapture. Okay, But what's God going to do there? God will turn again his attention to Jacob, which is to say to the children of Israel, and he's going to start working on them again. And it's going to take all of the horrors that they are going to face in that seven-year period of time to turn their hearts altogether back again to God. And then you read over, read over in the Revelation about it where he says, they will see him coming from the east, speaking of Jesus. They will look upon him whom they pierced. They'll recognize him. They'll know it was Jesus the whole time. And it's going to be a shattering revelation for them, but in the end, it's all going to work out wonderfully because they will believe, they will be saved, as many as are there and alive at that time, and, and then it'll move on into the next epic of human history. That's a study for another time. But back to what we're talking about here. So that's a lot to bring out of just his teaching on outreach. Well, that's kind of the end game of it all. He says, you'll be brought before governors and kings for my sake. And, and then he says, well, when they deliver you up, take no thought for how or, uh, take no thought how or what ye shall speak, for it shall be given you in that same hour what ye shall speak. In other words, God will give them the words to say. And many times with us, even though we're not the Jews he's talking to in this context here, in this immediate setting right here in our, in our Bible reading, he still gives us the words to say when we're talking to people, if we just stay in tune with the Holy Ghost. Have you ever prayed before you talk to someone about God? God, give me the right thing to say. I don't want to open my mouth and just stick my foot in it. I, I read a tweet recently. Somebody was talking about, well, I don't see anything wrong with uh, talking with a Muslim about Allah in a Christian context, you know, and, and appropriating that term, Allah, to get the gospel across to them. And really, I know where they're coming from, and I can respect what they're saying, or their intention, I mean. But you got to be really careful when you do that. Because Allah is the Islamic concept of God. Okay? 
And so when you start talking to a Muslim about Allah, what you're invoking is an entire conception of God that is wrong. Because to the Muslim, Allah is, well, there's a few things that they have right, but then he's capricious. He can be hateful. You have no idea if you're ever on his right side or his wrong side. There is no blessed assurance among Muslims, not like there is among Christians. Because the relationship between Allah and a Muslim is nothing like the relationship between the God of Abraham, which is to say the real and true and living God, and the born-again believer. Because he is a father to us. Allah is not a father to the Muslim. He is a terrifying capricious and fearful judge and that's all he is and the Muslim has no idea if he's right with that God or not until they die and of course when they die they, they learn that they've been on the wrong side the whole time for obvious reasons and so you know you can use that tactic if you want to talking to a Muslim but be careful be very very careful we'll say it's just another word for God well actually it's not okay let's just fill in this little blank here and we'll we'll uh, we'll wrap it up here in just a couple of minutes all right Allah is a contraction, Arabic. It's an Arabic contraction for the words al-ilah, which means the God. And believe it or not, its history reaches all the way back to their pagan days, their polytheist days when they had lots of different gods and lots of different idols. And the one that Muhammad singled out to use as their God, as the one true God for them, was the moon God. Where do you think that symbol comes from? The crescent moon. All Muhammad did was take one of their pre-existing pagan false gods and exalt it above all the others and appropriate Abraham and the biblical account back there in Genesis. It's an old technique used by many cults. There's people that do it to this day. Mormons are just one of them. There's lots of other ones too. There's others that take it and appropriate things that are true and twist it around into something else to support their narrative. That's all that, that, it, that uh, Muhammad did. He took a false god and said that that was the one true god. Now you know. So when you talk to a Muslim about Allah, it's a case of two people speaking English, but two people speaking two different languages. Does that make sense? So just talk to him about God. Or better yet, talk to him about Jesus. See where that goes. Because with Jesus, there is blessed assurance and there is forgiveness of sins. And that's good news you can take to anybody. They may not accept it, but then they've had their chance. And then your hands are clean. And then you move on to somebody else when God presents the opportunity to you. And it's a blessing. It's a blessing. There's a couple that attends this church. They're not here today. They're traveling. But why, why are you bringing them up? Because there was a divine opportunity, and I don't remember if it was my wife that was with me or if it was Reverend Ryder who was with me. It might have been you, sir. When we were in Menards, and we went back to the paint section, and we invited that guy who worked there, and we kind of had to work on him for a while, but then he came. Actually, his wife came first. And then over time, she came back, and then he started coming. And now, he loves it here. And he loves all of you, to the best of my knowledge. I think he does. He hasn't said to the contrary, but judging by the smile on his face... I'd say he's got a good heart, okay? God has been at work in his life and in his wife's life. Why? Because of one divine opportunity that was not skipped. Well, it's awkward inviting an employee at a store. I actually find it easier to invite an employee because you're already talking to them and they're there to communicate with people anyway. It just kind of lends itself to, oh yeah, hey, by the way, why don't you come out to my church? 
Just saying. Just an example. Just an example. All right, move on, preacher. You're making me uncomfortable. Okay. He says, you'll be hated of all men for my name's sake. And that's true. There are a lot of people that will hate you because you name the name of Christ. He says, but he that endureth till the end shall be saved. But when they persecute you in this city, this is the part I want to get to. We'll close with this next part right here. When they persecute you in this city, flee ye into another one. What's he saying? You don't have to stay there and take the beating, okay? If the opportunity's there for you to get out of Dodge when they start pulling guns or throwing rocks or whatever it is, okay, it's okay to go. Go to another city. Why? Because a living evangelist can do more than a dead martyr. Amen? It's glorious to die for the gospel, but I'm not looking for that to happen. You know what I'm saying? I'm not asking for a martyr's crown. If that's what God wants for me, then praise God, that'll be what happens. Give me the grace to handle it well when it comes my way. But if you can get out of Dodge and go preach the gospel or share the gospel rather, or you know, whatever it is, you know, if you can get out of Dodge and share the word of the Lord with somebody else in another place that's safer, it's okay. Go for it. He says, when they persecute you in this city, flee ye into another. And there's a pragmatic reason for that too beyond just self-preservation. If they're persecuting you here, they've obviously rejected the message, haven't they? So go into another place where they haven't. Give them their chance. And you can apply that to however it may be. Well, you know, we go to one neighborhood and all the people were horrible. We experienced that. We were knocking on some doors up north of here, uh, just north of Del Range. And it seemed like everybody that was home, about eight out of ten people that were home were just meh or even hostile. So what did we do? We didn't finish that neighborhood. We'll go back there if the Lord wants us to again. But we went to a different neighborhood. Why? Because there's no time to lose. And why should we waste our time with the people who don't want the word when there are people who are grasping for it that are just waiting for us to show up? Not that we're the only ones, and I'm not saying that we are, but you understand what I'm saying. Well, I've been trying to get this one person out to church for 10 years, and they just keep barking at me. Okay, well, points for persistence. Find somebody else. Find somebody else. Doesn't mean you never, you never stop praying for them necessarily. You can pray for them for the rest of your life. And it might break through. But talk to somebody who's receptive. Anyway, all right, let's move on. He said, when they persecute you in this city, flee to another one. For verily I say unto you, ye shall not have gone over the cities of Israel till the Son of Man be come. Uh-oh, now what's he mean by that? Well, this kind of opens up prophecy again. The gospel hasn't penetrated every single city in Israel. It hasn't. It hasn't penetrated every single city in Israel, but it will. During that seven-year period, we talked about that time called the tribulation. There'll be people there that are going to be sharing the word, and it'll penetrate. And there'll be those that believe, and there'll be those that won't. Verse 24, it relates to verse 23, but it kind of launches off into a different point. I'll just read it really quick. The disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. It is enough that the disciple, it is enough for the disciple that he be as his master and the servant as his Lord. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more shall they call them of his household? So it, it's a basic message there. We'll, we'll end on this. If they hated Jesus, they're going to hate us too sometimes. And it's just a fact of being a believer. Some people will love you. A lot of people won't. That's okay. Don't be put off by that. Don't be discouraged by that. There's an old, there's, I don't know how old it is, but there's a saying. I rather like it. It's come up uh, lately. If you're, if you're uh, 
if you're not catching flack, you know what flack is, right? Think back to World War II, all right? If you're not catching flack, you're not over the target. So if you're not catching heat for the gospel, then you're probably doing something wrong. You're probably in the wrong place or something like that. As far as reaching out to people or reaching out with people, even if, if it's active or passive, however it may be. Thank you for listening to Come to the Table, Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. Included in these presentations are red-letter studies on the life and teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ, historical studies on the Old Testament, topical studies on biblical doctrines, and practical studies on Christian life. If you enjoyed this presentation, you can support our efforts by contributing at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY giving.